Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to see you. Um, well, we know we need healing these days, um, and today we're going to talk about the healing power of storytelling. And um, there are so many healing powers in the world, and storytelling is a human gift and a Jewish gift. And we have a, a, a wonderful teacher here with us today. Actually, our, our wonderful board chair, David Lieberman, was at a renewal conference last year. And I uh, said, please be on the lookout for an amazing uh, presenter. Um, who fits with VBM, and um, David had this terrific suggestion. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an honor to uh, welcome, for the first time to VBM, but hopefully not the last, Jim Brule, who is a Magid, a transformational storyteller, teacher, and mentor with a very diverse background. He has advanced degrees in clinical psychology and artificial intelligence. His online school, Transformation, Transformational Storytelling, trains spiritual storytellers from multiple traditions to tell stories that inspire healing and spiritual growth. As a death doula, he works with families, individuals, and caregivers. He is a member of NIDA, the National End-of-Life Doula Alliance, where he has achieved the EOL Doula Proficiency Badge and has a subsequent certification as a death doula from the dying year. Finally, he is also an interfaith chaplain in hospital prison and jail settings, and a storytelling healer at Nomega Home, a last home for the dying. Jim also works with organizations and communities to promote dialogue across learned boundaries of faith, ethnicity, privilege, and class using stories. As usual, friends, as um, Jim is presenting, you are welcome to post comments or questions in the chat. Otherwise, after his presentation, there'll be a, a chance for a Q&A and a broader dialogue. Thank you all so much for being here, wherever you are in the world. And Jim Brulé, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to see you again, David. And uh, it's good to be here with all of you. Um, those of you who know me, uh, and there's maybe one of you who does, uh, know that I like to have a very interactive style. But today I'm going to shift that up a little bit and give you a lot of material um, to, to consider. The good news is uh, I'm not going to ask you to remember it all. You're going to get copies of the slides. You're going to get copy, copies of this so that if there's something that kind of piques your interest, you can deep, dig, dive, uh, dive more deeply into it and, uh, and get a sense of what is going on. And of course, we'll have time for questions at the end. We're going to talk today about the healing power of storytelling. And um, you, you did just hear uh, an introduction of me, but I want to kind of put up what I've been doing in, in two different columns, because there's one side that's the spiritual side, and that's where, you know, I'm a Magid, I do this spiritual storytelling, a chaplain, a death doula. And then I've also spent a fair amount of time on the commercial side of things as a family therapist, as a computer scientist, and really for about 15 years in healthcare IT. And for me, they all come together. And I hope by the time we're done, you'll you'll start to see that too. If I had to say, what's the one thing I want you to walk away with? It's that we should know that healing is not curing. 
Sometimes they get used interchangeably. Curing is the idea that we can get rid of a disease or a trauma or a wound that we've had and go back to what we used to be. Healing is when we are transformed by that into something new. I don't believe in curing, especially not in a spiritual sense. I don't think we are cured. I think we are healed. And I think stories are the vehicle for us to do that, one of the most important vehicles there is. And uh, we're going to talk today about why that might be and how that works. But I'm a storyteller, so I have to start with a story. Many, many years ago, my daughter was living in India. She lived there for several years. She was doing research and work there. And uh, my wife and I decided we ought to pay her a visit. Who knows when we'll ever get to India and have someone there. She spoke Hindi. Um, so we thought this would be a great thing to do. So we made the arrangements and we flew over to meet her in India. And we said, what do you want to do? And she said, leave India. So we said, okay, well, what, what, where do you want to go? She said, I want to go to Nepal. Now, Nepal had always been on my bucket list. Um, and so that was an easy yes to give. And so we headed out to Kathmandu um, at probably the best and the worst times to be there. See, this was the period of time when there was a lot of terrorism in Nepal. The, the, um, the, the Chinese communists were fighting with the royalists, who were fighting with the Democrats, and bombs were going off, and the tourists had stopped coming. So it meant we were able to get there um, when no one, where there were no tourists there. It was really back to a lot of what it is when tourists aren't around. So that was pretty much an advantage. And one of the things that I really wanted to do was head off into the foothills of the Himalayas, as I understand they're pronounced. And so our guide, whose name is, of course, Babu, uh, took us out into the foothills on these little trails. Off in the middle of nowhere, you might see a person, oh gosh, every hour or so, walking through this beautiful, beautiful mountainside. Um, and as we're walking through the mountainside, I look up and at the top of one rather steep, they would call it a hill, was an orange flag. And I said to Babu, what, what's this orange flag? And he said, oh, that's a, a Hindu temple. That's so people can find their way to the temple if they have a need to pray or make a sacrifice or something like that. And I said, do you think it would be okay if, if we went up and had a look? And he said, Absolutely. Now, you have to understand, people in Nepal generally, especially once you're outside the big city, don't speak English. But we had my daughter with me, and I naively thought that Hindu might help. And there was this switchback of a trail that just went back and forth, back and forth, way up the top. So three of us headed up the hill, and the rest stayed down. And as we're getting close to the top of the hill, this young man comes racing over to greet us. And in fluent English, he says, you're here. You're here. The guru's been waiting for you. And I, I looked at him and we looked at each other and I said, I, first of all, I'm glad you speak English, but I know you've got the wrong people, that there's nothing a guru would want from me. You're, you're expecting someone else, although we hadn't seen anyone. And he said, no, 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 no. The, the, guru, the guru wants to speak with you. He has a question for you. And I said, now I know you've got the wrong person. <laughs> I got nothing for the guru. And he said, you're the ones from New York, right? Well, we were. And we hadn't seen anybody pass us in that direction. 
So we went up. And at the top of the hill, there was this run-down little temple, kind of barely a room. It was all in disrepair. People were trying to rebuild it. And the cynical side of myself said, I know what they're looking for. They're looking for money. That's his question. And of course, I've, I've got money. I'd be happy to give it to him. That's, that's, I'll go there and, and I'm looking forward to this. And we sat in and I have to, to, to let you know that this is not a made up story. We met the guru. I sat down next to him and he asked me a very personal question that only I could answer. There was no question that it was for me. And he wanted to know my answer. And I'm here to tell you today that I've never told anybody what that question is. And you don't have to worry, you're not going to be the first. That's not what I learned. What I learned was here were two people separated by almost the entire circumference of the globe who couldn't speak each other's language and yet had something very, very valuable to share with each other. And that's the basis for what we're about to do. What we're going to talk about today is how we learn, because transformation is learning. It's a special type of growth, special type of change. We're going to look at some of the neuroscience that sits behind that, how that fits with storytelling. I'll share another story and, and a little bit more about healing, and then we'll have time for lots of questions and discussion. This is one of my favorite quotes. And it certainly frames the way I look at the world. When science meets spirituality, it creates a milieu for transformation. I, I believe that the spiritual world and the scientific world are the same world. And they each have different languages and ways of informing each other. But when we start to look and listen with those different ears, boy, that's when transformation can really take place. Here's the most technical part, or one of the two technical parts of this. There was a fellow named Gregory Bateson. Now, some of you may know who he was. He was a, a computer scientist. He was an evolutionary biologist. He was a spiritualist. Um, he was a mathematician. He was married to Margaret Mead. Um, he was an amazing individual. And he was very interested in how is it that systems, whether they're people or organisms or, or organizations, how is it that they learn, not just change, but how do they learn? And he developed a taxonomy, a language for talking about learning that happens to inform storytelling and growth. Um, now, he was a mathematician. I've taken his model and reduced it to four levels to make it simple. But like him, I started at level zero because mathematicians start counting at zero. At level zero, there's some kind of input into the system, some event, some stimulus, and there's a change in the system. But it's very specific. It's reflexive, really. There's no learning that takes place. You apply stimulus A and you get reaction B. And if you want to have an easy way of conceiving it, think of a time when you visited the doctor and she wanted to test your patellar reflex and tapped your knee and your foot, if she hit it right, went flying up in the air. That's a level zero response. You didn't learn anything. You didn't have to think about what to do. In fact, it wasn't even conscious. It was purely reflexive. That's a change, but it's a change with zero learning, level zero. And there's only four levels. The next level, level one, is where there is a change and there's some learning that takes place. And it happens within a known set of alternatives. Now, again, let me make that a little more easy to understand. Let's say I were to ask you right now, what's the square root of 72? 
Well, hopefully you wouldn't know the answer. But you would know that it's a number. You would know it's not a fruit, it's not a color, it's not a sound, it's a number. And so you're going to pay a little attention to that stimulus, and you're going to try and come up with a number as an answer. You may or may not be successful, but in that period of time, you've devoted a little bit of your attention, and at the end of that time, you're going to come up with either I don't know or a number. Maybe you pulled out your calculator. That's a level one change. Now, had I asked you what's one plus one, you all would have said two, and you would have said two without thinking. That would have been a level zero response. And what Bateson says is, at some point in time, you didn't know what the answer was. You had to think about it. But when you repeated that often, often, often enough, it sank down from level one to level zero. And that's what learning is. When you understand something so that you have to devote less attention to it when you're faced with that kind of a, a stimulus. This is the money piece. This is the level two change. And this is what we'll be mostly talking about. This is when the context changes, and all of a sudden, you have to select your response from a new and unanticipated set of circumstances, set of alternatives. I'll give you my favorite example. I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting in a comfortable cafe. You've been there many times before. You know it's warm and safe, and it, and you know, just feels good to be there. You're sipping your cup of coffee or tea, whatever it is. And across the room from you sits an attractive person. And absolutely, actually, as it happens, sitting next to you is another attractive person. And what makes it special is that person over there is flirting with this person next to you. Now, if you're like me, You've got the best seat in the house because you can watch this happen now. And one is flirting with the other until something happens. Imagine this now. Something happens and you realize they're not flirting with the person next to you. They're flirting with you. And in that moment, you have a whole bevy of physiological responses. Your heart rate speeds up, your breathing changes, you probably flush. Whether or not you like the idea of this person flirting with you, all of a sudden, everything else around you goes blurred until you can figure out, what am I going to do about the fact that this person is flirting with me? Don't want to pursue it. Do I want to run away? Doesn't matter. Bateson says, your budget of attention has been drained to figure out which context you're in. And in that moment, as an evolutionary biologist, he says, you're at great risk. Because let's say you're that typical caveman who's going around a tree and discovering a tiger, and you have to decide whether to climb the tree or run or throw a rock. In that moment where you're frozen, not knowing what to do, there could be another tiger that's attacking you. So we are wired biologically to make that decision as quickly as possible and figure out which bucket do I want to put this experience into? Threat, or safety, attractive, repulsive. This is where stereotyping comes from. This is where all our predispositions come from. It comes from this biological urge when we're confronted with a surprise 
to quickly file it away into a known slot. Bateson had one more level, which he called level three. And this is where there's a change, not just in the set of circumstances, but who you see yourself as. I'll give you a couple examples here. One is where Bateson's intent was to say, you know, we've all had these moments where we realize we have this great spiritual experience and we're just a sand, a grain of sand on the ocean of the universe. I've lost a sense of who I am. That's what Bateson was trying to get to. It's become more useful more recently because that's also the experience of PTSD. So there's a lot we can learn about this kind of change. But the important thing for you to know is that at each level, the amount of attention that's drained from your budget is exponentially greater. And so what we want to try and do, because that drain puts us in danger, is to sink our premises down to a lower level so that we can make a response and gain back as much of that attention as we can. This is what Bateson calls the sinking of premises, and that's learning. That's what we're trying to do. Biologically, we're always trying to build new categories or figure out what category to put some, what existing category to put something in. And the reason for that is that the strain on the budget of attention is just exponentially greater, no matter what's going on. So this is Bateson and Bateson's levels of learning. Now, I'd like to show you some really incredible animation. And what that is, this is a narrative arc. And this is one way of kind of graphing a story. You know, story moves in time from left to right. And if you think about your uh, favorite um, story, it has ups and downs. It gets you more and more engaged. You know, the, the amount of energy is the vertical axis here. And that little twist to the far left is not an accident. It's not just a flourish. We start with a certain amount of energy. We settle into it. That energy drops a bit. And then we have some set of circumstances that takes us across this mountain trip. So here's, here's the animation. Uh, every story has a protagonist, a point of view. And it's not just enough to have a protagonist. They have to have an object of desire. There's something they're yearning for. Otherwise, we're just reading a set of facts. It's not a story at that point. But that object of their desire can't be immediately available to them. It has to be avail It has to be removed from them in some distance. And there has to be some kind of challenge to achieve that, that object of their desire. And so they head out up towards their object of desire, and they encounter an obstacle, a monster, a rock, whatever it is. They have to defeat that. And then once it's defeated, move on and continue that over and over again until they have the big, uh, the big battle. They're presumably successful. They're united and all is well. Spielberg, watch out. That's the fundamentals of a story. Now, there's lots of variations on that, but this is going to inform how it is that stories live in our brain and live between us. And for that, we're going to do a very light version of neuroscience. Two slides with pictures on them, and then and then some thoughts. You may or may not know that our, ner our uh, nervous system is made up of all these wonderful things called nerve cells that are connected to each other. The cell body is where a signal starts, and it travels down this thing um, called the axon until it finally reaches another cell, has an effect there, and, and the signal continues. And 
The important thing to know is that those two cells are not actually connected, but there's a gap between them. That's the synapse. And there's something that gets um, e emitted into that gap called neurotransmitters, and that's what lets those signals pass from one neuron to the next. I'm going to introduce you to five neurotransmitters that have a lot to do with storytelling. They have a lot to do with other things as well, but this is this is a... Their importance here is, is in storytelling. Three of them make us feel good. Two of them make us feel stressful. Neither one of them is good or bad or indifferent. They all serve the same function, helping signals pass through our, our neural system. What they do is they add a flavor to the signal as it passes through them. So, for example, dopamine. You've heard of dopamine. Dopamine, when it's when we're flooded with it, gives us more focus. We can pay attention better. We're motivated. We're interested in what happens next. We're able to get a hold of our memory. We're able to, to recall lots of memories very easily. How is this generated? Well, in a story, if there's a suspense or a cliffhanger, that's going to generate dopamine in us. This is unfortunately the reason that people have gambling addictions, because the power of dopamine is stronger than the reward they get from hitting the, the jackpot. Um, there's more pleasure that comes from anticipation than from satisfaction. It's part of the way we're wired. Oxytocin you've heard of. This is uh, sometimes called the, the mother's um, uh, neurotransmitter. It generates bonding and generosity and trust. You know, if I were to give you a stack of $10 bills, and ask you to give one some to a stranger. If I gave you a little sniff of oxytocin before I asked you that, you'd give twice as many as if I didn't. It's that's what it does. And how is it stimulated in the story by building empathy between you and the character? And the last of the good ones are endorphins. Uh, these create uh, generate creativity. They they make us laugh. They really amplify our focus, and they're stimulated by humor. You'll see why, why that's important in just a moment. And the last I've lumped together, that is cortisol and adrenaline. Now, the effect of these is they form a flashbulb memory. We all have flashbulb memories. These are things that were so intense and so powerful that we remember not only where we were when they happened, but what we were feeling and who was around us, we get the whole flashbulb context of going on. Now, it's great for memory formation. You might think, why don't we have them all the time? Well, that's because, first of all, if you use them over a long period of time, it ruins your memory. It starts to degrade your memory, and it inhibits your ability to, re to retrieve old memories because they're trying to make room for a new memory. They also make us feel anxious and frightened. So it's not something we want to have all the time. How do we get there? This might look familiar through an unexpected contextual shift. So we're going to put these all together in a perfect cocktail. And you'll see how this fits the narrative arc perfectly. We start off with a little bit of humor. We want to generate focus and creativity. This is why people tell you to start a good presentation with a joke. It gets people focused and creative. Then we want to lower the energy a little bit. So we 
look for some oxytocin to do that because it's going to build bonding between you and the protagonist. We want you to feel what the, the protagonist is feeling. So we, we t share something that makes you feel good about the protagonist. Then we have our first set of, of um, conflicts. We're increasing your focus. We're increasing your motivation. We're priming your memory to form a new memory. And so we flood you with dopamine. How do we do that? Through anticipation, through those cliffhangers. And finally, we provoke the change we allow you to form a flashbulb memory, and that's the through cortisol and adrenaline, that surprise context shift. And that just keeps continuing throughout the arc of the story, however that happens to play out. Um, at the very end, we have the denouement, and everybody's happy, so we do some more bonding. We let that new memory, that new powerful memory form and be absorbed into your system. And... If this reminds you of the human sexual response, that's not an accident. This is how we work. This is how we learn. This is how we encounter the world. Now, everything I've been talking about so far has to do with one person. But stories are about at least two people. Um, and there's this wonderful thing called neural coupling. Neural coupling is a well-established phenomena. It says if someone is speaking to you and you're listening, like now, your brain waves are starting to mimic the brain waves of the speaker. Your brain waves are starting to mimic mine, even though we're not in the same room together. We've all seen this happen. Who's had the experience of someone finishing their sentence for them a beat or two after you've finished? Well, that's because your two brains are coupled, but theirs is running a half a beat behind. Not unusual. My stepmother is the other kind. She's the one who finishes my sentence two or three words before I do. And that's because her brain is coupled with mine, but she's running a little fast. All right. These are well-known things. Uh, another factor in, in neurocoupling is that when our brains are coupled like this, you're learning more than the words I'm speaking. You're learning my context. There's wonderful experiments that show if if I were to sit you down with a shoemaker and the shoemaker was to just talk to you about something that was important to them, not shoemaking, and then at some point later on, you went to learn how to do shoemaking, you'd be better at it than if you hadn't spent the time with the shoemaker, even though you never spoke about shoemaking. This is one of the, you're absorbing what the other person has to offer, even when they're not aware of it themselves. One more point on this trip and then a, a a couple more pictures. So here's our narrative arc. You remember, I, I took us on a trip through the Himalayas. Now, if this had been my map, I would have been in trouble. Because if I had turned left or right at any one point in time, I'd be completely lost. I'm a map person, and I know that we can take that kind of elevation thing and turn it into a, a topographic map by putting a line every 100 feet or so, and then flattening it out and now I've got a map that tells me more of the territory. In fact, that curve that we were just looking at is this line here. If I have this topographic map in front of me, I have a lot more information. And that's what I'm carrying in my spirit, in my knowledge, all the things that have to do 
with my life and what I know, even if I'm not speaking about them, even if I'm not um, directly transmitting them. And if I'm carrying a map around of the world of the story, then I don't just have the path that takes me to Buffalo Mountain there in the center of things, but I also can get to South Willow Falls. I can tell a different story in the same environment. I can also change part of the route the way I get there and make the, the thing uh, better suited to my audience. But I have to know the map. I can't just know the line. And here's the last little bit. In graphic design, there's this notion called white space. And if you're all looking at this right now, you can see the triangle that's there. Of course, it isn't there. Even the line that exists between the circles that you can almost see is not there. But we have the power, we have the biological drive to construct things that we don't really even realize we're constructing. Now, there's another place where this has a, a, a particular um, application, and that is in clinical hypnosis, which is something that I've, I've been trained in as well. And when you're telling a story or when you're giving someone a, a hypnotic session, it's important that you leave blank spaces so that they can imagine the things that are important to them. And I'll, I'll tell you a short, a short story about that. Um, I, had a, I had a client once many years ago, it was early in my career, she was a 12, 13-year-old girl. And, and let me just tell you that if something bad could happen to somebody, it had happened to her. She had had a terrible life in her short years. And she was just absolutely burdened with so much sadness. It was hard for her to get through. Now, there's this technique in, in hypnosis that lets a person gain a little mastery over their powerful emotions, and it basically works down to desensitizing. You put someone in a trance, you have them imagine something before them, let's say a teddy bear, and as they approach that teddy bear, they feel warmer and fuzzier and safer and, and better until finally they pick it up and they embrace it, and oh, they're just they're just beautiful, happy. And then you have them put it away, let's say in a closet. And as they retreat from it, the feeling goes down. And that's the first round of a, of a series that you would do. First, something starting with something nice, and then doing the same thing with other objects that represent other less pleasant emotions. And this is a way you can help somebody gain some mastery over these feelings. Well, so I sat down with her, and she was nicely in a trance and knew what we were doing. And I said, okay, there's this object in front of you, and as you get closer and closer to it, you're going to feel warm and fuzzy and, and good. And a few moments went by, and all of a sudden, she burst out laughing. And I said, Janet, what's, what's going on? She said, well, it's not warm and fuzzy at all. It's a watermelon. And <laughs> so. I had forgotten to tell her what to see. So I said, okay, well, here we are. Let's pick it up. Let's put it in the closet, put it away. She did that. She came back. Now I gave her the specific instruction to imagine a teddy bear. And, oh, it was going perfectly. She picked it up. She carried it over to the, to the closet, opened the closet door, and burst out laughing again. I said, now what's the problem? She said, the watermelon, it's still there. 
Now, what was really happening is I had made probably one of the best mistakes I've ever made. I had forgotten to tell her what to see. I had left a white space for her. And what did she do? She filled it with what she needed. She didn't need to feel warm and tender and vulnerable. She needed to laugh. And she found an object that would allow her to laugh. So she was able to heal herself or, or carry that healing process forward on her own because I had left space in the story for her to imagine what she most needed to hear. And that's what healing storytelling is all about. You know, the Navajo have a definition of self. They call the word they use is Nagi. And Nagi means literally a swarm, but a swarm of stories. It's all the stories that we tell ourselves. It's also the stories that we tell to others. It's the stories that others tell us. And you know what? It's the stories that other people tell about us when we're not around. The shape of that swarm, which is dynamic and always changing, is who we are. And if you have a hard time imagining that, here's a murmuration of swallows, of starlings. Um, they fly through the sky. They're amazing. Um, I've, I've seen some of them never as nice as the ones I'm going to show you here. But they're constantly shifting. If we want to heal, we have to shift the stories that we accumulate around us, either that we tell ourselves or that we let others tell us or that we tell to others. And we have to draw some close and let others go. You know, sometimes we might look like a bird um, flying through the sky, and sometimes we might look like a penguin. Um, these are all murmurations of starlings. Um, and, and that's what healing storytelling is about. It's about finding a way to find the stories that really shape who we are and sharing them with others. Because, and here's my last slide. Um, here's my last slide here. We heal by transforming ourselves into something that synthesizes our strengths and our wounds. And actually, there's one more slide after this. We arrive at the meaning of our lives through collaboratively negotiating our stories with all those around us. Stories are the containers of meaning that are constantly shifting, constantly changing, and constantly being exchanged with others. And you know what? No one heals without a community. We're all, as Mel Madrona puts it, neurons in a social brain. The stories are the neurotransmitters. We need each other to grow and change and heal. We can't do that alone. I'll just wrap up by sharing a little blatant self-promotion here. I've just published a book with a colleague, Rebecca Claire Lemaire, Stories of the Heart, where we tell 18 stories designed to address those who are facing uh, the end of life, whether it's their own or someone's they care about. And that might be also grief. With that, um, in your handout, you'll also get um, a bunch of reading if, in case you're interested. But I'd love to now stop and entertain your questions and discussions.
Thank you so much. Uh, yes, we would love to open it up to questions or comments. Um, anyone, please feel free to raise your hands and we can call on people and you can always write in the chat as well. Hi, David. Hi, Jim. Thanks very much. Sure. Uh, on the Gregory Bateson slide, when you went from level two to level three, mm -hmm. where the real transformation happens, because the focus starts going from the from the ex, from what's outside to the change in the self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that happens? Well, it, yes. Thanks. Great question. Um, how it happens in one sense is the same way it happens in all the other levels. In other words, there's some kind of stimulus that propels us, that surprises us. The, what's different and important about it is that we don't, the stimulus is forcing us to think differently about who we are, not just where we are. So if someone were to say to me, you know, I've gotten to know you, Jim, and you're a real SOB. I don't like you at all. If if that's someone I really admire and respect, that's going to throw me into a level three kind of thing. What? Wait, wait a minute. That's not the person I think I am. How is it that this person who I trust thinks that this is the case? Another good example of that is if I suddenly encounter someone who's very different than me, and they have the same view uh, they have a, a, a view of the same event that is fundamentally different than mine. If I'm open to it, if I've been primed, right, because none of this happens without, without being primed, then I can entertain that maybe there's another way of looking not only at the world but at myself that allows me to have that shift. But just like we've got to have preparation for that level two shift to happen, because otherwise we just reject it and say, no, 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 you're the other. I don't want to have anything to do with you. We have to be opened and we have to be open hearted for that to happen. And that takes process and, and work and preparation. Uh, hi, Joyce. Hi. Hi, Jim and everybody. Um, my, you're going to hear my voice changing. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I'm a storyteller. I, mm -hmm. I love your, I, I, this is my life. I'm Eric, an Ericksonian. I study ah. Bateson. I, I, for 40 years since, well, not almost 40 years, since 19, yeah, 1980. And, um, and it's my life. It, mm -hmm. It's, I see everything as a story. So thank you for bringing out the other pieces. Of course you study that, but that's not my, what, grabs my heart. So I'm really excited and excited to get your book as well. Um, and I've written books and, I, and I've been a speaker nationally. So I'm not saying that R and I wonderful. I'm just saying mm -hmm. okay, now I cannot do that. I'm now in a transition of my life. I'm not sick. I'm not like sick like that, but I have these tremors. I have this voice issue. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm saying how important what you're doing has to continue. Mm. It is storytelling is, 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 you know, when I used to work, I worked with Navajo and Carl Hammerschlag. I don't know if you know mm. Carl. He's like my brother. But the, the thing is, is that the, the, this kind of storytelling is critical. It, it, for me, I think of it as like medicine for the soul. Mm. And um, 
And I love hearing what you're saying. Um, you. It's also making me aware and, and I'm not I, I, of what is missing dramatically for our children and our society. Mm. That stories are the medicine of the soul. It's a heart. It's it's healing. And everything you said, you know, it's not curing. It's we're healing. And I'm is there? You know, I'm just listening and felling. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Thank you felling. so much. But, and and I want to know how else and where else. I know you're a therapist. Um, I've re had to retire, so it's a major transition in my life. And I want to know where else are you teaching or, right. or sharing your stories and share a story with us? Okay. Well, I just put a link into the um, chat, transformationalstorytelling.org. I'm still teaching. Uh, I have an alum here with us, Sarah. Welcome. Um, so this is something I've been doing for many years, um, and uh, I continue now. Uh, my next class is going to be a, a deep examination of an old Russian story about the wonderful birch. So we'll have all sorts of opportunities. Thank you. Bev. Thank you, Thank you Jim. I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed. I've recently <laughs> gone back into looking into highly sensitive person, and I just have this image of all these fractals coming off of a spiral, and I am just, you know, it's overwhelming. Mm. So I did send you some stuff on uh, synchronicity, yes, which is I saw that. very for me today. And um, it makes me think of the three jewels in Buddhism, mm -hmm. of the exemplar, the Dharma and the community, the Sangha. And I see that all incorporated in storytelling. And I think that's what all spiritual paths have always done. And um, yeah, I really appreciate what you're talking about, but it's a bit much right now. I, it's a lot to pack into 45 minutes. I absolutely agree. And hopefully the, the slides will give you a little chance to exhale and digest them more slowly. Danny? Yeah, I'd like to ask, how does humor and the stories, you know, humorous stories fit into all of this? Great question. Um, in a couple of different ways. It it really is an important way to start a story, not just because it, it quote, warms people up, which is the conventional wisdom, but it actually lets people know, oh, we're entering into a new world now, and it's okay. The humor you know, if I start off with the axe murder, you're not going to be as likely to to lower your defenses a little bit and come step into the world with me. So humor, in one sense, uh, relieves some anxiety. It also, like I said, with the neurotransmitters, gets our brains a little more focused, a little more set receptive. So that's one thing. But it's not only useful at the beginning of the story. It's useful every time we've gone through a little bit of the, a difficult spot. It gives us a chance to step back, to focus, to say, okay, um, there's, there's maybe not four hours of darkness ahead of me. I can, I can have a rhythm to what's going on here. So it's very important there. Um, the last bit is there's always a connection between whoever's telling it and whoever's hearing it. 
and it it built it rebuilds that connection a little bit as well. So it's useful after a difficult passage, but it's also most importantly useful at the beginning. I, I tried to start each of my little vignettes today with a little lightness. Again, just for that purpose. It doesn't have to be, you know, a flat out joke, but there should be something that lightens it up to, to open the door to you to walk through without too much fear. Great question. But doesn't doesn't, Go ahead. doesn't a joke in the sense, isn't it a small story that has a buildup and it has a, you know, a surprise ending? Oh, sure. Yeah. And a joke can follow the same structure. I, when I was referring to humor, which doesn't necessarily have to be a full, fully structured joke, um, yeah. but a joke will follow that same structure. It'll create a conflict. It'll surprise you with a twist. It's the same fundamental structure. Thank you. Uh, Eddie, are you there? I know you had a question before. Yeah. Hi. Thank you so much um, for this wonderful presentation. I'm wondering what you uh, recommend. As a storyteller myself, I often find myself using my own story of struggle, uh, being a migrant and um, mm -hmm. being formally undocumented to share and bring about change to those um, who are still struggling with the immigration system. But because my story is pretty um, pretty impactful, um, I find mm -hmm. myself feeling drained after I tell it. Um, mm, sure. And I'm wondering uh, kind of a twofold question. How do I regain my energy afterwards, in your opinion? Mm -hmm. And how do I maintain its beauty and its power after I tell it for multiple times? Uh, yes. Great questions. Um, uh, let me answer the... Well, let me say something about personal stories to begin with. Personal stories can be some of the most powerful stories we tell. If we're using them to try and inspire change, which, you know, you're trying to do, they can also be some of the most difficult stories to tell, because what is necessary is that sometimes we change the facts of the story to make it a better story. And when we're telling our own story, there's this kind of instinctive, oh, I, you know, he was wearing a purple shirt. It wasn't yellow. You know, there's that kind of reflexive say, I've got to tell the truth, when really the truth is the emotional truth and spiritual truth that's inside it, not the facts that, that were there. So first thing I'll say about that, um, how, do you, how do you regain energy? I mean, uh, the short answer is you have to have a spiritual practice, um, whatever that might be. Um, this should be not the center of your life necessarily, but an episode in it that you can leave and come back to. And when you've gone through that leaving before you return, there's something, and whether it's a, a, a specifically a, a practice associated with a particular tradition or a walk outdoors, anything like that um, can be a way of regaining your energy. And you have to be absolutely very conscious, intentional about that. Put as much effort into restoring yourself as you do into telling your story. Absolutely. Um, how do you tell the story without letting it get stale? Um, well, that's, you know, the hardest and easiest thing to say. It's it's by opening your heart each time. Um, you have to be ready to, to feel the pain every time. And that isn't natural. Um, so we kind of have to push ourselves into that. Um, I know when I'm telling, I didn't really tell difficult stories today, but when I tell difficult stories, um, 
I, Sarah will tell you, I'll weep um, because I'm feeling them again. And that that is draining and I have to have self-care to take care of that. So important points. Hi, is it Jenny, Michael, I think? Mike, yeah. I know what you showed because we have a limited amount of time and everything. One simple aspect of the process of learning and, and functioning mm -hmm. of our brain. Um, but, you know, we have databases that we've built up since birth of knowledge and information. And then I take it that the higher up you go from one to two to three, does the filtering increase? And that as you go higher up, does that involve, does that change the cumulative knowledge base? I don't know if you can talk about that in three minutes. Um, yeah, <laughs> let me try. Uh, it's a great question. What, what happens as you ascend that ladder is that you have two things happening. You're making a more general view of the world rather than a more specific view of the world. And you're also trying to get out of that state as quickly as possible. So you want to reduce it and make it more specific as quickly as possible. So the, the database is really um, apples and oranges. That, that maybe is sitting down there at the bottom, but it also is part of the, the general structures we have about, you know, what are the buckets I can put these things into? The key to learning, the key to healing is to being able to say, I'm going to allow myself to entertain the notion that what I thought was true isn't. And, and that is the hard work. That's where stories help, because stories, the minute I say to you once upon a time, you know I'm going to be changing the rules of the world. And you've agreed to do that with me. So I'm already opening up that possibility of looking at the world differently. Now the question is, how much skill can I use to get you to think that this is going to happen and actually reveal that to you instead in a way that doesn't drive you away, but that in a way that invites you in. Uh, there's something in the chat from Charlotte. Oh, okay. Um, I tend to just look at the screen. Charlotte, do you want to reiterate? I'm, you've got a lot of chat here. So you want to reiterate your question? Yeah. Thank you so much for the really inspiring talk. Um, and uh, yeah, as, as a graduate of peace studies, um, like one of the main things that I took from um, studying this is that, that storytelling is one of the most important things when you're creating or growing peace and um, mm -hmm. trying to encourage trust between people who come from different cultures or believe different things. Then, yeah, I think storytelling is such a powerful tool, maybe even the most important tool. And so I was just wondering if you'd ever come across this concept of the moral imagination, because I think it's very similar to what you, you were talking about. Yes, I've encountered it. I'm not deeply read in it, but but I'm very much involved in, um, as, as an example, we have a, a, a little group we call the Brothers Three, which is sounds like a bad joke. It's a Baptist, a Muslim, and a Jew. And we've been meeting ever since 9-11 um, and studying together and doing spiritual work together and speaking to churches. And, and, and that only happens successfully because we tell stories to each other. And that's, that's the foundation for what we do. So, yes, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, Martin says, um, in people with dementia, there's any evidence... Is there any evidence that repeated storytelling is therapeutic and restores any memory ability? Well, that's a um, 
I, I'll be very cautious in my answer here. There certainly people with dementia love to tell and hear familiar stories. Now, what their therapeutic benefit is, in the short run, I don't know whether we're talking about restoring memory, but we are certainly restoring a state of being that is far more comfortable and welcoming than the, I work with folks with dementia, that the frightening world of not being sure what's going on and where you are and who's with you. So the familiar there, whether it's a story, which is great, um, or a song is another great tool for this, um, can really allow people to relax and then have less fear about what's going on and have a, a better existence at that point. I don't. I wouldn't go so far as to say that they restore memories. I would say that if someone is relaxed and in a mode in which storytelling is in being encouraged, they may recall new stories, you know, uh, that they hadn't been telling before. So there may be new access to them, to things they already know. Whether it improves the memory, I wouldn't be ready to, to make that claim. Well, thank you so much, Jim. This has been a great presentation. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, just want to also let everyone know about our next class, which will be on January 18th. We'll be joined by Rabbi Shlomo Levin for his class on food, clothing, and shelter, human rights, or charity. So we hope you can all tune into that as well. Uh, thank you all so much for being here today. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.